Of course, Malcolm Gladwell, being Malcolm Gladwell, has a grand theory of all of this, of, of sort of crime shows. And so he says, well, everybody's heard of a Western, right? We don't, we, but have you ever heard of a Northern? And so then he, he begins to lay out a theory that involves a Western, a Northern, an Eastern, and a Southern. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. We've got a little pop culture excursion on the menu for you today. Malcolm Gladwell, ever heard of him? Malcolm Gladwell, his, uh, interestingly enough, I don't think we've ever discussed or mentioned Malcolm Gladwell so. no. on Thinking Out Loud. Yeah, pretty amazing. So anyway, we're going to do so now. Malcolm Gladwell has an interesting theory. Maybe, about, well, introduce us to Malcolm Gladwell real quick. Just the, give us the 30-second. Honestly, I am not as versed on Malcolm Gladwell. So he's a writer for the, for the New Yorker for a while. He's ventured, I mean, he's a, he's a podcast ninja, I would say. So <laughs> yeah, revisionist, go. revisionist history. I've listened to a few. So I guess I'm more familiar with him than I would, than I thought. Yeah. I've listened to a few episodes of revisionist history. He's written he a lot of another, books. He's written a lot of, he had another podcast called broken record, which by the way, had an absolutely amazing episode again, recommended by our friend Travis. So, Hey Travis, mm. but absolutely amazing episode called true Norwegian black metal which is very, <laughs> you wouldn't think this, very funny, by the way. So Okay. So Gladwell is basically a producer you. of just a lot of content and connecting a lot of dots, film, art, literature, cultural analysis. Yeah. He's yeah. kind of your, a lot your of journalist. Talk, yeah. stra- talking with Strangers is probably one of his more famous titles. But yeah. Very, okay. So that brings guy. us back around to where we want to go today. Right. So he has a grand kind of theory of genre. Law and order art. Yes, that intrigued Nathan Rittenhouse. So I think what got the conversation started was somebody, he was being asked by Joe Rogan, actually, about the appeal of a show like Law and Order. And part of part of what went into that was, you know, Law and Order, everything is just so neat and tidy. Everything is always wrapped up within the span of the episode. Justice is served bad guys go to jail, get their comeuppance, and, it, and it's all just neat and tidy. So the question was, what is the appeal of this? And so, of course, Malcolm Gladwell, being Malcolm Gladwell, has a grand theory of all of this, of, of sort of crime shows. And so he says, well, everybody's heard of a Western, right? We don't, we, but have you ever heard of a Northern? And so then he, he begins to lay out a theory that involves a Western, a Northern, an Eastern, and a Southern. There you and go. I'll see if I can do justice to this. Yeah. No geographic discrimination. We've got all of our cardinal no directions represented in our justice theory. Right. So a let's start with let's start with law and order. A northern is a show where or a story where law works perfectly. The system is good. Everything works very mm-hmm. efficiently. Bad guys go to jail. Law and order. There's a northern. And he points out, by the way, that in Northerns are really popular in Britain as well, where they 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 like the function and you know it's it's very reassuring. He also points out that a figure like a Sherlock Holmes, for mm-hmm. instance, is is a Northern. He might now that the police department might be bumbling and he might help them along, but there aren't crooked cops in Sherlock right. Holmes, at least not yeah. in the classic stories. So then, but then there is a Western, and here 
there is no, according to Ma- Malcolm Gladwell, and all of these are debatable, and this is this is a theory, so this necessarily is going to overgeneralize, and I have a bone to pick with this one, but I'll, I'll do so later. But a Western, according to Ma- Malcolm Gladwell, you have an outsider coming in and imposing law. There is no order. legal structure. It's right. the wild, so it's wild basically west. basically kind of, yeah, it's kind of, it's wild, wild west. It's a chaotic situation, and somebody comes in and imposes order. That's a Western. And then the Eastern is when you have a system in place, but there are some bad apples in play. And so somebody, an insider, needs to reform the system from the inside out. And so the classic example of this in movie terms is Serpico. With, with I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a wonderful movie with Al Pacino. But yeah, so you have the one, the one good cop in the midst of a cro- crooked system trying to enact reform. The system's not totally broken, but it's significantly broken and needs a reformer. And then finally, we come to the Southern. And the Southern is the system, system is rotten to the core, and you need an outsider to challenge the system. And his example here is every John Grisham novel. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, and he's, he also says, I, I really like John Grisham a lot. And he's, but he just says every John Grisham story involves, you know, you, you have some outsider who has to challenge the system that's rotten to the core. And there is Malcolm Gladwell's grand genre theory right there. So let's, um, let's loop back around because I'm guessing that you want to say something about the fact that those categories aren't as neat and tidy in your experience and your reflection on Westerns. So let's get Cameron's critique out of the way before we plow forward with the utility of the (laughs) concept. Because, and the reason we're doing this is because the degree to which a, if we're going to call art, works and sells well is the degree to which it describes the reality that we want to be there. Um, That's that's a controversial statement. You know, um, David Foster Wallace would Mm -hmm. say that TV, we're like, oh, you know, can't believe, like, he said, no, TV is art that displayed the way we want the world to be and that the things that mm-hmm. we seek out, I mean, he was before the internet age, really, but that a show like the shows and the Westerns or the types of movies we watch say something about how we wish it was. So this is going to get back into a more theological and personal analysis of how you envision yourself in the world, but we're, we're coming into it through what is it that, in this case, most Americans or English speakers here in the films we'll be talking about um, or in the structures, how do we envision ourselves and justice in the world? And what are we looking for in those categories? So this, this will get practical, but we better give Cameron his due here to uh, be the critic. My impractical due. Well, first of all, I think given what you've said, we need to introduce a helpful distinction here between popular works of art that really cater to an audience, which by the way, I think is fine. Recreational entertainment, we might call it. It sounds like I'm being condescending, but I'm not. It's understandable. Television shows often fit into this category. And then serious works of art in the sense that they are not as concerned with catering to an audience and they're more concerned with realizing a vision. So mm-hmm. I hope that makes sense because there's overlap. Or challenging. Because you can have... Right. Yes, exactly. Challenging because, well, whatever that the vision may itself be challenging or it, it may be uplifting, but it's going to be a serious work of art is more concerned with internal consistency to its vision than it is to pleasing an audience. And so there is overlap. So you can so you can have television shows that are genuine works of art. You can have popular entertainment, by the way, that rises to the dignity of, of, of a real work of art. So 
And a real work of art is always going to challenge some of those neat categories. But broadly speaking, what, what Malcolm Gladwell is talking about here is popular entertainment that's really made to, to please an audience. So that's fine. But that said, he talks about how Westerns, for instance, don't have, you can't really find lawmen in Western in Westerns. He actually makes that statement. Of course you can. <laughs> so he, I mean, he, he's many, talking, did he say that? He was saying that was like a Jack Reacher thing, right? Where Jack Reacher never calls. The yeah. Police. He was saying Jack Reacher is an example is a of a Western. Western. And again, I, I, yeah, his, his, his definition of somebody, you know, a chaotic kind of situation where somebody comes in and imposes order. I think that's fine so far as it goes, but that certainly doesn't preclude lawmen. I mean, Western films are absolutely filled with sheriffs and deputies and I mean, everything from true grit to the searchers. I mean, all of these, these films are filled with lawmen and mm -hmm. stories as well. So I don't think that quite works. And also you have, modern takes when he talks about a modern western he he offers jack reacher which fits it, it makes sense that, that fits his theory and a, a lot of vigilante action films i suppose by his definition would fit that theory but he's omitting more complex modern westerns and the one that i have in mind specifically is no country for old men because that's definitely a western film it is so incredibly upsetting to people who are ex or are expecting a traditional western. I know several people who when that came out walked out of the theater because they and not because they didn't think it was a really well made film. It was so well made and they found the vision of it so appalling that they left because they didn't want to sit through a film that so inverted their vision of the way a western works. Because in that story it does involve it does involve a law enforcement officer Tom, played by Tommy Lee Jones. That's one part of the story, and it involves him encountering a person and a type of evil that simply exceeds his understanding. And his and he certainly has no ability to contain it. He doesn't know what to do. And so, at the end of that film, there's basically he, he finds it impossible to establish any kind of order. And the film does leave you with a sense of real upheaval and even chaos. So I think that there are, I'm just all that to say, yeah. now I've had oh. my due. There, okay, there are, well, let, these let me, categories do get Let me push back on your pushback then. So you you mentioned something like True Grit. Um, who's it? Rooster Cogburn. Um, it, it seems to yep. me that in the Western, the way in which the law shows up is somebody, yeah, so John Wayne is the marshal in multiple films, but it seems to me that the marshal exists. Like, he's, he's, de so, so we give, so we, John Wayne becomes the marshal or the sheriff in order for us to justify in our minds him killing people. Sure. So it's still a lawless system, but we make some designation of like, who, how do we decide who gets to be the Avenger? basically or the, how do we how do we get to say says who when it comes to what rightness is now a lot of westerns and even up through like james bond or something you have some kind of atrocious thing that some villain does that then justifies anything that's done to the villain and the rest of the thing so part of it is like the structure of how do we set up who gets to be the one who imposes and defines justice um so i think the sheriff and the marshal concept in westerns often works like that where we just 
um, it's not saying that the system, that there's a system where the system is righteous. It's just giving us like, here's how we designate the Avenger isn't the right word there, but maybe it is. Well, the, I no, I think you, the, it, well, this points to some of the central paradoxes in American thinking though, because, and you can call it, let's just call this the myth of redemptive violence and the notion there you that, go. you know, yeah, you have some sort of a hero figure, and you got to put hero in quotes here, because as <laughs> given what you've just said, and I think that's the accurate way to look at it, you have a person who is essentially a total vigilante imposing his view, and it's usually his, let's face it, in these films, of justice on everyone else, you know, offering protection, certainly, and but he's he's imposing order through a kind of violence well through very real violence and this is and this but this violence is legitimated by his use of power by the fact that he's defending the weak usually and i mean interestingly enough nathan i think we're we're self-conscious enough now to where in our pop culture to where a lot of modern superhero movies are wrestling with this in a way that they they hadn't in the past especially hmm. the Christopher Nolan Batman films. They really do because they those those wrestled quite deeply with the the moral the moral complexity of vigilante justice. But yeah, I think that's why when I mean you watch these but a really good western will deal with this in a way that isn't simplistic. So for instance, a film like John Ford's The Searchers, which I think is John Wayne's best film is an incredibly complicated movie. I mean, and the character John Wayne plays in that film, Ethan, is by no means portrayed as an ideal or a good person. In fact, his behavior is really appalling. I mean, excessively violent, gratuitously so. That that film is really amazing. To it's amazing to think that that came out in the 1950s because of it implies a lot. But what it's what it's implying is pretty drastic. But also, what's clear is there's a subtle comparison going on between John Wayne's character of Ethan, and he's he's hunting this Native American Indian chief named Scar in the movie. The two of them are actually quite strikingly similar. They're both fierce warriors. They're both very courageous. They're both very smart. And there's a sort of grudging, resigned admiration that the, that the two of them have for one another, even though they hate each other. And the film lets you draw, make that comparison and see that. I mean, it's, that's, that's quite a lot of moral complexity for a kind of 1950s film. That, so it's, yeah. it's anything but a consoling vision is, my, <laughs> is, what, is the point I'm <laughs> yeah. making here. So, okay, so why, why then do you think it is that we have, well, I mean, yeah, so people say, oh, yeah, that's, a Western is a category that people have, and that has everything to do from scenery to the whistling introduction to horses to sunsets. To, I mean, there's a whole, a whole, I don't even know what you want to call it, apparatus that goes around our concept of a Western. Um, but I, I think that his, his, uh, Gladwell's interesting analysis is then on the idea of, of parsing out the Eastern and the Southern and the Northern and like these other ways in which, um, art or films or TV shows or whatever movies grapple with, justice and how it works and so is there a way in which without getting into the weeds and i think we could go down the rabbit trail on all of these categories of actually looking at specific films but 
But the fact that these things are so popular, what does that say about humans? Or, I mean, if you want to narrow it down, Americans at least. But I don't think it is. I mean, you have samurai films, you have all sorts. So I think it's fairly universal that you have this type of recognition that something is wrong in the world. And then where I want to go with this is kind of like use this as a self-analysis tool. Like, which of these visions do you think you live in? Um, and that would be just kind of an interesting lens for self-analysis. Yeah. I mean, of, of course, everybody who is even remotely alert knows that something's wrong in, in human life and that things are not as they ought to be. And I think you have, it, it just, it depends on, you know, whether you think that human efforts are ultimately whether you're more optimistic about really human efforts to contain chaos and dissolution. And so if if you think that the structures that are in place are good, if you've got a lot of faith, for instance, in the political machinery of whatever nation you find yourself, then there's a good chance that you're going to find a northern vision pretty consoling. I I do I do think it's and again it's a I'm I'm wary of being pushed into Malcolm Gladwell's neat little th- theoretical framework here because I'm sure there there's there are aspects of northerns that that point to deficiencies. Yeah, so let's, let's say we can use it without adopting it. Can we do yeah, that? Of course. Yeah, I mean I I think so so it would make sense then that if you're if you live in a nation that's relatively affluent you've got a stable social order, then a show like a Northern has has a good plausibility structure that it can rest on. Or right? at least you want it to be true. So it's, you want it to be true. And so I think there are times in, in America's past, for instance, probably, and this is not true for everybody. This is true for, for people who, <laughs> this is largely true for Caucasians, okay? Say like the 1950s. There, there's a strong sense of, social order, the establishment. But even then, though, see, the problem is if you look into history, everything always gets complicated. Everybody's in the 1950s. You have the threat of, of course, nuclear war, which only gets more and more pronounced as it goes forward. You have you have Cold War fears and you have the fear of communism and all of that. So there's a good deal of paranoia there as well. But I think by and large, culturally speaking, if at least if you look at pop cultural artifacts of the 1950s, you're going to see reflected a strong faith in the establishment, right? We're just going to use mm-hmm. the word establishment in very grand terms, just meaning you got a good social structure. So in the 1950s, for the most part, if you're watching family shows, you, you're going to get a picture of a very fa- stable family unit, leave it to Beaver, so on. Good night, John Boy. Or if you're going to get cop shows, yeah, if you're going to get cop shows, now you're going to have a usually a stable vision of law and order. Now, Again, it's possible to complicate this because film noir totally complicates that vision. In film noir, you absolutely have crooked cops. You absolutely have totally unredeemable stories of, of I mean, just terrible actions. And the movies end on the bleakest of possible notes with amazing jazz scores and, you know, damsels in distress and terrible private eyes. And so I guess... 
the more you look into it, the northern certainly doesn't hold up very well. I think a lot of people, but Mayberry, but there's Mayberry, Cameron, a little bit. It's the Mayberry vision. There is Mayberry. Yeah, there is, and you're always going to have those. But yeah, I mean, yep. Andy and Barney usually get it sorted out in half an hour. They do. Yep, they usually get it sorted out. But I think when when people start start to squint their eyes a little bit, the northern begins to there's there's no point at which the northern really holds a high degree of plausibility, I think. I, I think okay. people just enjoy it as willfully suspend their disbelief to enjoy that, to to enjoy the northern. That's great. My th- my yeah, basic I think that's thought right. is my theory is that people don't buy into yeah, buy that. Well, okay. So we talked about the western. And we have a little bit of like, a, eh, I don't think you want a single vigilante person, you know, establishing justice on the frontier. So there's that. The Northern is probably the way that most people want the world to be. But to use Cameron's phrase, you sort of have to dis, you know, you suspend your belief um, in order to swallow it. What about the Eastern then? What about this idea? There is law and order. Yeah. There's a structure, but there's a bad apple in it that's messing it up. So yep. the system might be good, I but think- the actors inside are corrupt. Yeah, I mean, we'll give it. So, given what Malcolm Gladwell has has said about each of these, I think the Eastern probably fits the most with the world as we oh, know. Okay, it. Hmm. all right, make the case. Yeah, because I think, well, because we, so we do live in a fallen world, and also this is going to be very contextual, though. So, if we're talking about South Sudan, for instance, an Eastern is not going to fit as well. A Southern mm-hmm. is going to fit more, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So if you live if you live in a context or a nation where there is very very deep seated corruption, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about subtle or insidious, you know, corruption that you know hides in boardrooms, you know, or you know wears wears a white collar. I'm talking about in your face. Anytime you get pulled over by the cops, they expect a bribe or you're going to jail. That kind of thing. And we have friends who operate in contexts like that, Nathan then the Southern is going to be the most accurate mm-hmm. because you're, you're, you're talking about a totally corrupt world. And there are films, by the way, that, that capture this kind of essence. There's, I mean, there are many of them, but years ago, one that comes to mind, and this movie is not for the faint of heart. So you have been warned by me, but there was a film that came out years ago called City of God. Very, very well done film. But basically about young gangs of, of kids in in uh, brazil and that was an absolutely devastating film and a picture of corruption so deep if you're a christian all you can do is just kind of bury your (laughs) hand your face in your hands and just pray to god and say we we just we just need help because it was such a it's such a bleak context and that is true of places around the world but i think in our context here in the united states for instance and also a general picture of humanity, the Eastern fits better because it's not all bad. It's not, we're not, uh, human beings are not thoroughly rotten to the core. We are, human beings are made in the image of God. And so therefore, even in the worst of places and the worst of police departments, you still will find people doing good work, committed to the ideals of justice and doing the best that they can. And you'll also find the occasional, rare, but occasional, brave soul who's willing to self-sacrificially really, you know, go up against corruption and work hard to expose it, even if it costs them their life. So I think the Eastern, as Malcolm Gladwell has set this all up, 
comes across as the most plausible, I think. So where does an Atticus Finch fit in here? Like a, a To Kill a Mockingbird yeah, I, so sort of. So I would say that an Atticus, yeah, it's, no, and I, I would say an Atticus Finch is more of an Eastern model, to be well, honest. Well, that's what I'm you. just wondering, yeah, He's as not, you're describing it that way. Yeah. So there's a legal system, but he kind of has to go out on a personal limb in order to uphold and make the legal system work. Right, but he also can't bend the legal system, so he do, he doesn't get the verdict that he wants because yeah. he play he does play by the rules. Mm-hmm. So even even though he's in a context and a situation where all of that machinery is being used in completely unjust ways, he still believes in the ideal of law and order and knows that he must work within there. So he's not some total outsider who has to, you know, combat a completely rotten to the core system. And I could be wrong on this. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but essentially the the, the man who was name dropped by Malcolm Gladwell, John Grisham, I mean, his, his major inspiration was to kill a mockingbird. That's kind of what he's, when he yeah, wrote but- A Time to Kill, he saw that as, as his To Kill a Mockingbird kind of. Okay. But that's interesting because Gladwell says that all John Grisham novels are Southerns. And are so, Southerns, right. Uh, I, don't, so this, I don't think Atticus... Yeah. Yeah. I think Atticus Finch has more in common with Serpico than he than he does with some... He's not some total outsider. I mean, what, what schools did he go to? Where did he get his law degree? You know? And where does he live? And wh- where is he practicing? He's practicing right there in Alabama. You know? I mean, and that that is... That's that's the system he went through. He's not trying to completely subvert it. He's trying to rather work from within and show that it's not meeting its own ideals and that it's mm-hmm. contradicting its highest ideals. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So, okay. So the Southern then is the whole system is corrupt and you need somebody to come in from the outside and fix it. Right. Sounds a little bit... There's some some overlap here with the Western, I think. <laughs> Well, I think I think there it also like when you get to that level, if you look at like campaigns and the political narratives that go along with some of these the, like the, there's an interesting then political overlap, not just in like the legal art overlap part too. And I think the reason that it is so difficult to say which one of these best fits the way that the world actually is around me is because we sort of live in multiple justice systems that are stacked within each other. So there's your local mm-hmm. town council, your own neighborhood, your HOA, whatever. There's, you know, county, there's state government, there's federal government. Um, so, you know, depending on what city you you live in, you might think, oh, you know, here's this big scandal happening. The whole system is corrupt. We need to, you know, have somebody come in, new regime change, whatever. Um, the, the way in which this is all integrated and contextualized, it seems like it's a very fluid thing. Um, depending on where you live and the experiences that you've had in life. So I guess that's part of the reason why there's so much room for all of these quote styles, um, to be at at play. Well, you're right to bring up politics though, because I think, you know, not to get, and I'm not getting political. I'm getting descriptive here of a particular politician of recent years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, But here, so here we go. Donald Trump, the whole way that campaign was shaped and it was brilliantly shaped, I think, by the way, sure. very, very yeah. clever in its tactics, but fits the, it fits the Southern picture. That's right. So drain when people the swamp. say the whole system drain is the swamp. Exactly. Yep. Yep. 
That's exactly the, the the phrase I had in my mind as you were talking. I thought, oh yes, drain the swamp. And I also hearing people say, no, we need a we need a person who's not a politician. We need a total outsider to come in, clean house, and just sweep away all of you know, this, you know, whatever you corruption, whatever you whatever mm-hmm. you think. But now, obviously, that's I think I'm gonna I'm gonna speak carefully here because i don't want to be insulting and i know there there were people who had you know this was these are these were always every election is a high stakes election by the way always Mm -hmm. but i think when we say it spell it out in these terms we can recognize that this is a fantasy it's a really powerful fantasy but this wouldn't be true of anybody coming in oh sure that's right yeah but but what happens then cameron if we do make the switch here and saying this is going from tv shows to politics is then the the character and the nature of the quote savior is very different. So in a northern, you need somebody who mm-hmm. abides by the rules, is maybe a little you know uh, a little bit ahead of the curve on their intellectual capacity or their sleuthing skills. Um, monk, you know, sort of type Sherlock Holmes. These are all you know kind of special. You need you need that type of person in the eastern. You need somebody who has real personal integrity and character, who's going to uh, fix the system. Um, with the Western and the Southern, you need somebody who is a fighter and who's willing to get blood on their hands and knock heads together and leave a trail of bodies in order to bring justice about the white. So, yep. The white knight Gladwell says, yeah. So, so that would be an interesting thing to say then too, is that you could look at the language that a politician uses about themselves and perhaps discern the way in which they see the world, um, yeah, I don't know. Right. That's a just fun little youth side pastor. project for you. Youth pastor voice. Here's my youth pastor. You ready oh, for my youth I can't pastor wait to hear voice? this one. There is, there is a bigger Southern story. Okay. Yeah. Humanity. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what I was going to so That's corrupt. what I wanted to ask you. And so evil. There was no hope. They could not save themselves. And so God himself came to rescue them. But here's where this gets messy though. Here's where you, here's where you got to drop the youth pastor voice for a second. No offense youth, youth pastors, you guys are great. Christianity is a southern. You heard it here first. Keep it up. No, but how does but how does Christ conquer? Is it through redemptive violence? Does he does he walk in not right away by the way. Does he walk in with a with a gun, you know, and does he you know ride in and just you know mow everybody down? See, this is where Christian this is where again, yeah, not yet. But this is where Christianity messes with all of our human visions of justice. Because when, when Christ comes to save us, it's true, there's, there's the southern part, but he does so by dying on a cross and then rising from the dead. So he lays down his life. I mean, that's, that's the amazing... So that's, so that's the redemptive violence right there mm-hmm. of self-sacrifice. Now, if you read ahead and you get to the book of Revelation... There is a white horse. <laughs> it, it becomes a north. It becomes a northern. Yes, yes. But I think there. But there's. That's why. I mean, there are some archetypal. You know, if I can sound Jungian here for a second, resonances with some of these, and you do have. So I think we do on a certain level. You can look at. You can look at life. So let me give you an, another example, real quickly. This will. I'll conclude here with with my remarks because I think this because this is a contemporary show. It's a show. It's widely acknowledged to be a total masterpiece, and I think it's a southern. 
but it doesn't have a savior in it. It's mm. a Southern in the sense that it pre presents a picture of total and complete corruption. And that show is The Wire. The Wire was self-consciously modeled after Greek tragedy. And The Wire was created by David Simon. And David Simon was formerly a crime reporter for the Baltimore Sun. And it was also co-written by another guy who was a former narcotics officer. So these guys really knew it, knew their subject matter very well. But it was that show takes basically trains a microscopic eye on one American city and traces all the different facets of corruption through that city from the street to, to, to the school system, a middle school, to the press, all the way to the realm of politics. And it is a vision that is, for the most part, I mean, there are some faint, faint, faint glimmers of hope maybe in there, but it's mostly a very despairing picture of, of just corruption. And David Simon has has con continued to sing that song. He he released another show recently called "We Own This City" about cops in Maryland. And let me just tell you, it is not a very comforting show at all, and it's likely very accurate as well. But these, but this is a picture. This is this is a contemporary picture. I think of a Southern in the sense that it's saying, even America, even here, don't kid yourself. We are actually rotten to the core. And, but it's also, it has its hands up in the air in the sense of who knows, we don't know what, I mean, who knows what would fix this? There's no, there's mm -hmm. no politician up to the task of fixing this. There's no police chief who can clean house enough to fix this. I mean, the only thing that you could do from a human standpoint is sit back and say, it would have to be slow, 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 incremental, either total crazy revolution, which histor historically is a terrible idea, or slow, 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 you know, glacial-paced reform that might work, maybe not. But either way, it's it's pretty much a vision of despair. And I just thought that was interesting because that's a, that's a very contemporary story that just doesn't leave any room for hope. You know, that's it's helpful when you frame it out that way and you say it's a contemporary story. But I just was sitting here thinking as we described that, None of these categories are new. Like this has been the wrestle of humanity forever. So there are contemporary versions of this, but go back and read the Psalms, Greek philosophy, whatever. Like this desire to yeah. figure out how to approximate justice, what is wrong with the world, what would make it right. These are the big questions that everybody who sits down to think about um, them will come to a point where they say, what did you say? You kind of have your hands up of like something drastic would have to change. I want to read to you, um, I think by way of closing, out of Matthew chapter 12. And this is, um, yeah, let me just read this. So this is a little, little pericope here. Matthew 12, 15. Um, just finished up the Lord of the Sabbath section. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So listen to what God's plan for the chaos of humanity is. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will, get this, proclaim justice to the nations. How will he do it? He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So 
He does not come in any of the style of not the vigilante, not the uh, violent reformer. When you're not snuffing out, you know, the smoldering wick or breaking bruised reeds that's pretty gentle. But you can't stop there. The rest of the sentence is, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out till he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. And so that really is the, I think if we're looking for a story that resonates with what our heart really wants, there is a desire for justice. There's a recognition that things are wrong in the world, that things need to be put to right, that we don't have the resources to put them to right correctly, and that most of our attempts to do it usually trend into some sort of adopting the same system we're trying to fight in order to pick up redemptive violence or whatever, and then the cycle continues. And so the thing that breaks that cycle of human brokenness, but fulfills the desire of human longing, is for a divine intervention and for somebody outside of the system to really make it right in the proper way. And so I've had fun chatting about this with you, Cameron. I, I knew you'd have some interesting things and footnotes and and references there. And I hope for those of you listening, it's been kind of a fun little um, matrix to kind of run some ideas through too. But I think ultimately the apologetic value of it all is to say that ultimately all of them come up short, but they're pointing to a longing that we have for something to be true and good and right and righteous. And as Christians, we get to say, yeah, that will happen. God is at work in the world and he will lead the He'll lead justice to victory, and in him, the nations will put their hope. And so that's something for us to uh, rest in while we try to sort out what's going on in the world around us. So, yeah, may the Lord bless you as you get that all figured out in your mind and in your world. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.